Welcome to the Specify Growth Podcast. I'm your host, Tats Nakagawa of Castagra Products. Each week, I talk to leaders and experts about how to overcome adversity, grow massive organizations, and how to create meaningful change in the building materials and construction industry. Today's guest is Clifton Harnest. He's the co-founder and the CEO at TestFit, Inc. So Clifton, uh, thank you. Thank you for coming on the show. Thanks for having me, Tats. Very happy to be here. Yeah, so we were introduced by a, a mutual uh, friend and my, my, one of my past guests, and he was saying uh, very good things about what you were uh, doing. You got into the entrepreneurial stuff. Did you have any family background as an entrepreneur? Like, uh, is any of your family members entrepreneurs? Uh, yeah, it's it's uh it's like in the. <laughs> I have a my, my mom's family. My grandfather built an amazing spice company in San Antonio called Fiesta, starting in about 1955. My cousins are now kind of running it, third generation. And you know, growing up in San Antonio on the sort of summers, <laughs> we would I don't know. I had friends that would like go to summer camp. I'd wake up and go to the plant and like manufacture spices, you know. So we definitely grew up in a very kind of entrepreneurial world. But my dad, so that was my mom's family. My dad's family is a real estate development family. My grandfather got back from the Sicily campaign and became a journalist for the Washington Post in real estate. I think it was just a job that he found, you know, like he wasn't really connected to real estate, but he took that job and started writing about real estate. And one day he just realized, man, I can go make some money in real estate. Like instead of writing about it, why don't I just go do it? So he moved to Houston, which was going under a very big boom. And he's got real big into home building and light industrial. And eventually he was on the board of NAHB which is the National Association of Home Builders. So yeah, there's a lot of, you know, my dad, my dad, he he didn't do homes, but he did apartments like higher density. He's done, I don't know, 20,000 units in his career. And anyway, so I grew up in this environment of entrepreneurship and real estate development. And yeah, so it's, it doesn't surprise me that I'm working as a CEO with my own company right now. <laughs> so I noticed you uh, graduated University of uh, Texas at Austin with an architecture degree. What was your plan when you were doing that? Were you trying to go into business yourself? Were you just interested in the space? What was the original thought? So I, in high school, was able to take architecture class that was taught by an architect that worked at a local firm called Overland Partners. You know, my dad was the, the kind of real estate developer, and I, I knew I didn't want to be in spices because it was pretty boring to bottle. You know, I was just like, that seems kind of boring. So kind of fell in love with uh, design. And pretty early on in high school, like, you know, was pretty lucky to have like a class about architecture. And I really fell in love with like tool making and building the tools that that would then help you design the building. And it, it could just be like a rig to cut piece of wood more effectively, or and I just fell in love with that. And I was very fortunate to get into the, the UT School of Architecture. 
I think it was ranked number two around the time that, that I got in. And it really challenged me. Like architecture really grew me very deeply, I think, to try to understand holistic problems, like problems from a holistic view, as opposed to just like fighting symptoms of problems. And I, over the course of my time at UT, was able to work for internships in architecture. And I, I kind of ended up feeling like the architecture community would really benefit from, I don't know, more people being entrepreneurs. It was really difficult to learn because you would discover some information and, and maybe a, a partner or principal is like, oh, like, no, you shouldn't know that yet. Like, you're too young to know that. And I come from a real estate development family. So I'm like, I know how this works, guys. Like, so there was a bit of a business problem, I think, in architecture. And I got a certificate in business from UT to try to kind of understand finance and accounting, entrepreneurship, some kind of basics about business. And I kind of fell in love with finance. Like finance was really cool. It's like, how do you go score goals, you know, and then accounting is like the guys that are, are like keeping track of the score. So finance really liked, and I, I went home for dinner with my dad one time and he just like clicked in, why don't you go work in development? Like you clearly like finance in buildings, like that's development, like it's not architecture. And I was like, oh, <laughs> so I think as a young man, you, you maybe don't want to do exactly what your, what your father did. But for me, it, it ended up being a perfect fit. And so I, I got my first kind of development internships, the tail end of college, and absolutely fell in love with the absolute mad complexity of getting real estate development done. I mean, you're, you're managing construction, you're managing timetables, you're managing finance, you're managing cash flows, you're managing legal, and then you have an architect, you have everything under the sun you have to do. And I just, I love just the complexity of it and absolutely fell in love with it. That was fun for about a year until my job kind of turned into site planning and I was able to turn around planning documentation faster than what our architects could. So at this development company, we basically just started using me as a, a planner to plan everything. And it's really a math problem, like getting, getting the building to be an effective tool inside a deal is a math problem. And it's a, it's a spatial math problem. And I, I ended up just kind of falling in love with solving that spatial math problem. Can you give me a tangible example? Maybe not everyone will understand what you mean by spatial math problem. So, so walk me through that a bit. Let's say you are a real estate developer and you want to turn a piece of land near your home into an apartment building. The spatial math problem is to understand what the current market rents are and the current market occupancies. So if you look at the market and, and four bedroom units are, are maxed out, they're 100% occupied, but one bed units aren't, it might give you an indication of, hey, this is maybe a better place to build four bedroom units. So you have to figure out you know, how to cut up your pie, the most the building that you can build into product market fit, one that can actually lease up people, make the building a profitable building, and therefore 
make it so that the developer, the GC, the architect, the land broker, the landowner, everyone wins. And that asset creation is a spatial math problem. It's very difficult because in Excel, you can add a ton of units to something, but in reality, it might not actually fit. And the moment you add units, especially in the US, you got to have a ratio on, on how those units address parking. You have to address open space requirements, various zoning problems. And so solving housing from a deal perspective is very much a spatial math problem. Mm, interesting. And, and I've never built apartment complexes. In order to gather that information, is it is it readily available? Do you have to collect it yourself in terms of the market conditions to, to input into this math problem? So I think it, it depends on what kind of developer you are or what kind of mindset you, you take to the project. If your approach is we're going to use big data to mitigate risk, then you go and get as many data points as you can. And there's companies out there that sell data. They, they call literally apartment complexes every week, like, hey, what's the rent doing now for these kinds of units? And they write it down, they put it in a database and they sell it. There's also slews of analysts that work inside firms that will literally just call and do the work themselves. So it, it's very much, I think, a lot harder than most people think. Like nobody's just handing you the, the kind of information. You got to go make a judgment call for yourself. Sure, absolutely. So how did that mindset and thought transition to you starting a company? So the constraints for us were we need to process at least, I don't know, 150 sites a year in order for us to get like five or six that we're going to build. So you had these massive kind of opportunity cost meetings where you'd get like construction and design and development together and they'd burn, you know, five grand a meeting to to try to understand, you know, if they could do one deal. So I kind of looked at that and I was like, all right, that's that's like millions of dollars a year in OPEX is not spent on the actual buildings. So that frustrated me and I I got a kind of a good idea about kind of a product that could work from that direct experience. And then, so did you have the technical uh, skills yourself? Like how, how did you get off the ground? Like, did you raise money right away? Like how, how did it form? So my co-founder, Ryan Grieg, the most brilliant software engineer I've ever met. He was my roommate in college. He was like the valedictorian from his high school. He's like a 4.0 student. I'm not a 4.0 student, by the way. I was telling him about the problem and he's like, oh, that's kind of neat. Like that's kind of a big complicated problem. And for guys like him, they love to find big complicated problems to solve because that's the only way that they're going to wake up in the morning is if they have something hard to do. So he was a, a really great kind of partner from the beginning and he had worked on, you know, worked on the, the problem nights and weekends for a while. And then he ended up getting laid off from the mobile kind of game studio that he was working for. That was an interesting phone call. He's like, hey, I just got laid off. I'm going to work on this site planning application instead of finding a new job. Is that cool with you? And I'm like, yeah, I guess. I don't, I don't like have money for you to like make while you do this. And he's like, it's fine. We can make it up in the future. I'm just really excited to work on this problem. And he worked for about a year on a, a minimum viable product that really it was, you, you kind of just drew the, the shape of the land. And it would generate a wrap, which is a, a, a kind of a more Texas typology for, for multifamily. It's 
you know, a precast garage that's got sure. it's a big rectangle and you just sort of hide it with the, the stick built building around it. And it's about 8% of multifamily units in, in the country are, are wraps. So, I mean, podiums are 30%. If we were smart and actually knew what we were doing, tats, we would have started with, you know, a much larger commodity to attack. But instead, we were kind of young and naive and stupid and went with the wrap. <laughs> well, was it easier to get the wrap going first? Like, I mean, it doesn't have the largest market size, but it no, was just... No, <laughs> no, no, Live no. and learn. Podium is way easier. The kind of approach was we're going to build a product that we're capable of building and we'll, we'll try to get like some beta users. I mean, I was like a, I thought of myself as like a design architect at this point in time, like, I was going to leave development and go be like Norman Foster or something. And he ended up having the beta running and I, I ended up kind of convinced my my then, you know, very new marriage uh, with my wife. It was like, hey, I'm going to go not make money for like five years so that I can chase this dream. How would you feel about that? And she's like, okay. I'll trust you with this. And that was, you know, amazing is, is just Ryan and Annalise, my co-founder and my wife just saying, yeah, we'll do it with you. In October of 2017, we shipped that wrap generator that had a little bit of a podium tool in it. And we sold two licenses in October of 2017. Two licenses. How much did that sort of bring in? Uh, we made 500 bucks that month. So I think all of it was spent at the bar. <laughs> like that one, you know, we just celebrated, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't a huge amount of money, but when you work on something for so long and you finally get something from it, it was, it, I don't know, it blew my mind. I was like, yeah. this product that I conceived of in my mind made money. And it's like, it's not like a normal product. It's not a retail product. It's literally this like process driven thing that if you're not in the AEC world, you don't really understand. So Yeah. That's how we got to the first sale was just yeah. off of Ryan, Ryan Grieg's intelligence. Yeah. When did you feel like it was picking up steam? Like, did it, and after you did those first two sales, did it steadily increase? Was there a lull? Was there a point where it just started to, you're like, okay, everything's, when is that point where you felt that, you know, everything is going to work out? <laughs> uh, <laughs> never. I've never felt that way. And I, I don't think I ever will. I think it's, naive to think that we have made it ever. AEC is so broken in so many ways and needs so many things to be fixed that we're still in the first inning. I'm 31 and I, I probably will be 60 by the time I feel like I've made an impact, right? So, you know, that's 30 years. Like, uh, look what we've done in five. Okay, let's do six times that amount of time. I think that we could really, you know, eventually feel like we've made it, <laughs> but the industry is so far behind. It is. Yeah. So, so since selling the first two, like, what did you do to get the word out there? Were you doing anything special networking? Like how, how did you get, you know, that initial momentum? Yeah. So I don't take no for an answer. <laughs> so I'd like to say that I was a stellar salesman and a stellar marketer and a stellar product guy and all these things. But in reality, like Ryan and I grew up in a very public way in front of the entire industry over the last five years. 
and we failed a lot. Like, this is how you get the word out. You just, you fail. Like my close rate was 8%. I've had 2000 customer meetings. I mean, you do the math, like that's a lot of no's. That's a lot of, we'll see you later. Good luck with your pipe dream. And as an entrepreneur, I think a lot of people get discouraged by that. Mm. And so she got a lot of uh, unpolite answers. No, I wouldn't say impolite. I would say you'd go and do a pitch and they'd say, okay, see you later. And the answer is, is, or maybe we'll buy this, you know, it, like Americans are very good at being just ignoring, like instead of saying yes or no, they'll just ignore you. And I think early on, I was like, oh yeah, like they'll come back around, you know, like it'll, it might take a while. And we're here about five years later. Like, I think we just closed the firm that I talked to five years ago and they closed, you know, venture capital, you know, we can talk about getting investment in a minute, but you know, venture capital wants to see a return in about 10 years. AEC is not a place where most venture capital dollars end up because the projects last five years, <laughs> you know, from beginning to end, it's, it maybe is a five-year project and, oh, we're going to get you on this new software system that's going to change rapidly over the next five years. Okay, good luck. That is to say, like, we were fortunate enough to kind of bootstrap, I think, for the first, you know, I would say three years or two and a half years. But then Jesse Kors Blankenship, our seed round investor, kind of, we'd build a relationship and he's kind of like, hey, I can really help. Like, I can help you. And the magnitude of relief, you know, when you finally met like an investor that that understood the product, understood the problem, understood the space, and then says, hey, I'll help you, really was a, a huge win for the company. So we got the word out by cold emailing, cold calling. Initially, I got, I don't know, 15 customers that way. And then we shifted our strategy to inbound marketing, mostly because I didn't have time to do the cold calling and cold emailing. I was like, they got to come to us. Like we don't have enough time in the week. You know, I was doing mm -hmm. 30 or 40 demos a week. When you said inbound, you mean like SEO stuff or what were you doing? So outbound marketing is like, I get on your website, figure out what your email is and email you. Inbound is I post on LinkedIn or Twitter, some content and when people are interested in that content, they can click on it, engage with it, and then come to our website for a demo. Inbound was incredibly important for our success. You know, people across the world do not like drawing parking spaces manually and then throwing away that project the moment it doesn't work. Like, it's not a great feeling. It's an opportunity cost. And we had a product, still do have that product to solve it. Yeah. So yeah, no, that's, that's very cool. So the inbound stuff was working. Okay. Very nice. I mean, what, I mean, you talked about some of the hardships. I mean, what were the like lessons? Like, you know, you've been at this, you know, over five years now at this point, if you could go back and give yourself some advice, what would, what would you tell yourself, you know, when you first started besides, you know, starting the product somewhere else? You know, I, I think the the wisest way to answer that question is like, I could have gone back and done all these things differently, but in reality, like maybe I had to do it that way so that we could end up where we are. And by failing and fixing your failure again and again and again, you actually build trust with people. You know, like look at the SpaceX rockets, the early ones exploded 
they fell they didn't land on the on the ground right exploded again but they learned and they got better and now they're sending crude rockets like human beings trust the system enough to strap themselves to the rocket and go into space i think that you have to you have to build trust with the public and especially in the architecture world where new ideas are often frowned upon and not embraced so a lot of people kind of i think initially were maybe thinking that we would fail or maybe they were rooting against us because it's like automation of of jobs or whatever or that's their perception but in the long run we've earned their trust because like look you you want to have an ipoable business in aec you got to have the architecture community rooting for you and you can't build automation in a way that doesn't respect this industry yeah so test fit we've, we've maintained a low enough price so that architecture can adopt it, invest in it, and give us the feedback. And we've also been fortunate enough to get real estate developers and GCs using the same tool. And that's a lot of hope in my view is that if those three communities can kind of use the same tool and communicate with it, we have a good shot at getting people on the same page. Yeah. You talked about getting some of the, all the challenges in the AEC side. What are some of those other challenges? Maybe some of the ones that you're not tackling, but you're aware of. I think it's just a lack of empathy. Like, I think everything comes down to we have this OAC contract that breeds no innovation. And it's, you know, design, bid, build, segments the risk. It's really driven by, you know, mitigating risk. And you see some kind of light on the horizon with big complicated projects where it's design design build and you know everybody's in the same boat rowing in the same direction i think the future is about having empathy and if an architect has the empathy for a developer to understand that this person has literally signed their life away so that this building could get debt they might respect a bit more what they have to say and if a developer truly empowers his architect to be the design visionary for a project, he'll listen when they have ideas. And I always remember the kind of first conversation I ever had with, with a, a job site foreman. I was like, hey, if we design this building slightly differently so that the construction process could be faster, what would you do? And he didn't have anything to say. It was like, Nobody has ever asked me that question. And this guy did like half a billion in construction in his career. So I think it's all about empathy. We got to move the OAC contract in a, in a way that breeds innovation, innovation that takes risk off the table. I mean, right now it's just pegging it on people and people make mistakes. Yeah. So are you saying in a small way, AI can help us have more empathy? Yeah, I think it it's totally true. In TestFit, I trained a, a gentleman in Austin who's, you know, maybe 55 years old and real estate developer, very successful, and he's using the tool right in front of me and he kind of had to stop and say, I've been in this industry for 30 years. I've never had the power to site plan something. Like I've always relied on someone else. And right now I can see like in eight seconds that this site's not going to work with my vision on it. And it saved some architect that he, he works with, you know, three weeks of effort because 
he could tell right out the gate that it wasn't going to work. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, it's in my view about empathy and he had empathy for the architects like right out the gate because of that. Where I see technology heading is if we can give architects empathy to how a project is doing financially within a modeling environment, then maybe it's not 30 iterations to get to a final answer. It's maybe four or five because they're not going to build the thing in a way that's not going to get the yield on cost that it needs. Yeah. Quicker answers, more success on projects, which means further projects and development. Well, it's not just we're heading into a world where there's scarcity, you know, circular economy means scarcity. It means it means sustainability. And we have to do a lot more planning in order to get buildings built with less material and the same amount of same amount of value created, just less material. And I don't think we're doing a whole lot of that right now. Mm, I see. The next couple of years, what do you, where do you see yourself? What what sort of plans or things that you're excited about with what you're doing? So on the journey of the corporation, we did a seed round in 2020, which enabled us to build a team. It was before 2020, it was me and Ryan and my sister was kind of half time. And then we had one engineer before we did a seed round. That was the company. It was just four people. Well, three and a half. <laughs> And then when we did the seed round, it, it grew to about 11. And then we decided at the end of 2020 that we were going to go for an A. And the reason why was we felt that in order to accomplish our mission, our mission, which at that point in time, I think our mission was to democratize and form building design to all stakeholders, we actually needed more engineering horsepower. And in order to get more engineering horsepower, like we wanted to 10x our engineering horsepower, we have to prove that we're, you know, financially viable. We're a business that is investable. And to do that, we built a team that had sales, marketing, support, engineering, and product, just basically one to two people in each each kind of category. And that enabled us to, to get to the financial metrics that we needed to raise the $20 million Series A. And then the series the, the goal of the Series A is to build a corporation. Like we already have a product that works. It has product market fit. It's growing at a rapid clip. We're getting amazing accounts with the biggest companies you'd ever hear of. And we have to have a sufficient corporation to service our customers now. And if we don't, our customers could crush us, you know, with, with requests. So to, to that end, like we've gone from, I think, 12 employees at the end of October last year to now almost 30 so almost tripling in size. And it's really to build teams. Like we have a sales team, a marketing team, product team, engineering. We have two engineering teams now. So you have to go from just you and your co-founder being able to ship a product and support it to now it's a team that ships it and support it to a full-fledged corporation that literally just builds the test fit product, sells it and supports it. Yeah. So we're, we'll be a behemoth is the goal. <laughs> so, I mean, obviously going from just a few of you to a larger team now requires different types of skills and managerial things and leadership things. What sort of things did you have to work on or adjust to, to be able to sort of handle that? So we've been very fortunate to have a great culture and 
culture can cover a multitude of sins. In my view, Ryan and I were we're never going to be, you know, skilled operators right out the gate because guess what? We've never had, you know, teams of people reporting to us. So the culture here is very important. The culture is a culture of, hey, uh, if you fail, just try to do better next time. Let people know. Let us learn from it. Let's be open and honest about what's going on. And a lot of that, I think, basically solves for many problems that most businesses have. I remember working in many firms where it was just absolutely dysfunctional, silos, people kind of being political about how they'd make a decision. I don't know. Here, it's like everybody knows that I've failed a lot and made mistakes, and I've been very vocal about it. So that means that they are able to talk about that too. You have to have a culture of hope. You have to have a culture of like, it has to be positive. And, you know, we're building the future of AEC, like if we can, if we are successful, the commodity world will be greatly affected by test fit. So housing, it's a very big human right that I think is kind of walked all over. And what we do is we help people plan housing. We help America's corporations build their storage facilities and in industrial. I mean, that that's a market that is basically strapped right now. Uh, the pandemic really showed just how weak our logistics were. We do housing and logistics right now, and the culture solves a lot of problems. Yeah, makes sense. Clifton, is there anything that I did not ask you that you wanted to share? I don't have much of an agenda. I mean, if I've gotten kind of my points across, that's good. You know, I, I think that the future is bright. I think that we're also heading into a recession. I think we're heading into a part of the industry where, you know, the last time around it shed a lot of the great architecture talent and they never came back. And we're, we really struggled over the last six or seven years because that talent didn't exist. I hope that some of these firms are, are capable of weathering this storm because we can't lose the same amount of talent again. It's really bad, I think, when the economic cycles are so devastating on an entire industry. And I don't know, my, my hope is that we can keep people engaged with AEC as long as we can. If not, you know, I got another 30 years of my career to, to help it. Perfect. Well, Clifton, thank you for uh, sharing your story. Thanks, Tat. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to the Specify Growth Podcast today. Make sure you check out youtube.com forward slash Tats Talks for video of today's podcast. Hit the subscribe button for upcoming episodes. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. <laughs>